Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had been been around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, I think they were, the the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item. Backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hello, this is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Hello, it's Rick Houston, and welcome to episode four of the Scene Vault Podcast. And again, with me is my former boss, mentor, colleague, Steve Wade. How are you doing, Steve? Oh, don't forget stock boy, chauffeur. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't remember you ever chauffeuring me anywhere. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> you were my enabler. You were the one that gave me the company credit card and told me I could eat whatever I wanted to eat, and I took you up on that. Yeah, boy, do we ever regret that. The company. <laughs> First year the company showed a loss. <laughs> <laughs> now we know what happened to Scene. 
Well, Steve, you know, the last couple of episodes, we have been playing the interviews with David Pearson. And when I do something, I like to swing from the heels. I really do think that people enjoyed those interviews with David Pearson. And the next two weeks, we've got a couple of very special interviews with your good friend, Junior Johnson. That is going to be very, very special. I look forward to that. You talk about the legends in this sport. you got to rate this guy number one. He personifies NASCAR racing, and I think that's a, a great thing on his part, but it's even better for all of us. Well, you know, you really do know Junior very well because you and your good friend Tom Higgins wrote a book on Junior called Brave in Life, published by David Bull Publishing, just real briefly. What was it like working with him on that project? It was a very unique experience. Tom and I broke up Junior's life into chapters and sections. And he would do this section and I would do that section. And we told Junior that. And we'd come up to his place and interview him in his old, whatever you want to call it, garage workshop. You've been there. And uh, sit down with him. He was fully cooperative. He did not hold back anything. Uh, he was informative. He was funny. He liked doing it. That's what was special on our part. He really enjoyed it. So it was not a very hard experience whatsoever. And I can tell you it was an easy book to write. I may regret asking this question, but who got to write the moonshine section? Well, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> and I learned a lot. And I tell you, I, I had no idea of the uh, amount of moonshining that went on up there in Wilkes County, not far from where you live. And uh, Junior explained that it, was just, it wasn't anything like a hobby. It was a way of life. And his father was probably the leading moonshiner in Wilkes County, Robert Glenn Johnson, the first senior. And he had at least, at least 10 to 11 stills going on at one time. And Junior said the reason was, if they busted up one still, well, you just couldn't go out of business. You just went on and got it from the other one. So it, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Steve, hopefully that'll whet people's appetites to listen to this interview. So Junior, take it away. We're here with the legend, Junior Johnson. Of course, Junior recently was elected to the first class of inductees into the NASCAR Hall of Fame. And Junior, first of all, congratulations. Thank you. It's an honor to have that put on you and not expecting it and stuff, so I'm just elated by it. Has it sunk in yet? Well, not really, you know that uh, people thank me for what I've done and stuff like that. And, you know, I'm a kind of person that I, uh, I didn't do it for anything other than the sport, and uh, I didn't expect nothing back. Payback like this is certainly worth what I did. Were you in Charlotte when they made the announcement, or were you back home? I was almost home. Well, you were almost home. And I was listening to it on the radio. Is there any way to put into words what your reaction was? I'm not a real emotion person, but at least my wife was with me and also the man that runs the distillery that we have. And uh, both of them said they was sure there's tears come to my eyes. <laughs> Are you denying or confirming? I'm not real sure. <laughs> <laughs> 
Junior, has there been a point in the, the past couple of weeks where you've had a chance to reflect and say, I'm just a country boy from Wilkes County, North Carolina, and here I am, a NASCAR Hall of Famer? It's been a, a long, long road, but uh, I, I've really been in some great, great people, companies and stuff. This presence of being in the Hall of Fame and elected to certain things and stuff, it, uh, I just appreciate it, and I can't just tell you in words what, what it means to me, really. Now, you said the night before at the Moonshiners Revenuers reunion up in Wilkes County that if you were elected to the NASCAR Hall of Fame, that it would be pretty much the highlight of your life. Is that the case? That is the case. I, you know, uh, everything that's ever happened in NASCAR racing is was uh, behind me winning the Daytona 500. But not anymore. Getting inducted into that Hall of Fame, took that away. I know that you've already been asked this question also a thousand times, but how did Holland Moonshine on the roads translate over into what you did on the racetrack? It gave me so much advantage over other people that didn't know had to train and learn how to drive. When I sat down in that seat, the first race I ever ran, it was a back seat to what I'd already been through with. I had uh, did all them spinning deals and sideways and, you know, stuff like that. And it just made my job so much easier than anybody that I had seen come along and go into it. And I never, ever... Did I see a guy could take a car any deeper than I could and save it as long as I raced? Now, you ran a couple of races on the old Daytona <clears throat> Beach and Road course. I, I really didn't run but one race. Me and Gwen Staley went down there and kind of in a drove a car one time. But uh, in 1956, I went there for Brushy Mountain Motors over in Taylorville to uh, win that race. And I think I would have won it if I... You know, hadn't the track hadn't got so rough, it I just kept bluffing the track, making you know uh, attempt to go through the ruts and stuff the way I had drove at the early part when it was smooth, and I went in too deep and sliding through them ruts, it, it dug in and turned over. Uh, but uh, I was leading the race. I you know I was on my way to win it. Now, uh, do you remember how much you won for that race? No, I don't. $25. Well, <laughs> the, the fun I had was worth every dime. <laughs> because I was, there, I was there against Ford Motor Company, Chevrolet, and Kikafer. And, I, you know, Kikafer had a line of cars. That, it was hard to outrun them, but if you worked at it, you could beat them. You obviously won the 1960 Daytona 500. In that race, you were credited with discovering the draft. How did, how did that come about? Well, it was an accident on my part, and uh, it uh, was something that I didn't know what I'd done. I knew I had something that nobody else had, but I didn't know what it was. 
And Cotton Owens came by, and I was out on the racetrack. Ray Fox was working on the car. He built a car for the track, or the dog track there, and he had two weeks to build a car and have it at the racetrack, and you can imagine how, you know, how much of a race car it really was. It was almost a street car. But that wasn't the worst part of it. It had a, what, a 409 engine in it, and that was really a truck engine. It wasn't a, a race engine. It was for pulling heavy loads, not running fast. So I was there at a pretty big disadvantage. But I anyway, when Cotton came by, I ducked in behind him just, you know, I wanted to race with him. And unbeknownst to me, all of a sudden, going down the back stretch, I could run all over him half throttle. And I said, that, you know, I think, and you know, I really thought Ray had got the car fixed. We was, I don't know, 20 mile an hour slow. I went back in and Ray, he said, well, we, we've got it running now and all. And, and I didn't say anything because, you know, it did run fast. And I told him, I said, Ray, put me on a brand new set of tires and let me go back out and see how much faster it'll run with brand new tires on it. Well, I went out and I run three laps before here come jack smith in one of them pontiacs and he was the fastest pontiac of the whole bunch well i run along about the flag stand i picked him up and about down at the end of the, the back stretch i could have passed him i was all over him going in the turn so i run him through that turn down in the front stretch and back down the back stretch again and i pulled off and went into pits and didn't say anything to anybody, nothing about it. I said, it's just, uh, I almost came home. I almost didn't stay down there because the car was so slow. And I said, well, if I stay and I can do this all day long, you know, I might come out of here with a pretty good finish. So I just kind of shut up about the car <laughs> and went on with my business. And I knew what I was going to do that when that race started, I was going to, uh, you know, go to the front through using the draft of the people that was out there. And it wasn't long I was up there. Uh, the first four or five cars, I, was, I stayed in it a lot. But when they'd go to the pits, I just had to wait till one of them come out, you know. Then I could go back again like I was uh, doing, you know, while they was going from one pit stop to another pit stop. Now, was there one car in particular that you followed that day, or was it pretty much just pick and choose? Pick and choose, because the Pontiacs would get away from me every once in a while, and I couldn't ever get to them unless they come around again. I'd have to pick up some of the slower cars, but the slower cars, when you get to them, they'd speed up and you'd speed up. So it was a, a pretty good contest of being able to say that uh, you could uh, draft on a slow car and almost run with a fast car by itself. When did you know you had the race won? When Bobby uh, Johns spun out. I knew I had it won then because his back glass flew out and the wind went in the car and sucked it up off the ground in the back and it turned around and around down through the grass it went. And I knew if... Uh, the wind was that bigger hazard on his back end, he couldn't run anyway. And Jack Smith, what had happened to him to get to me, 
was that Jack had come out and picked him up and drug him around there because he just burned a front wheel burn out and they fixed that when the Pontiac people found out what was going on about 20, 30 laps to go. And Bobby was second to me because I'd been drafting all day and he's running by himself so he was, you know, not well ahead of me. I thought, well, if some of them big new Pontiacs don't come back out, I've got the thing win. And they figured out what I was doing. And they fixed that hub for Jack Smith and sent him out and drug Bobby Johns up through there. And they was in front of me whenever uh, his back glass blew out. Other than that win, what was your most memorable race as a driver? I don't know that I had a special It compared with winning the Daytona 500 because of the way I won it and the disadvantage I had when I went into it. I don't know how what you would call it. It's just absolutely miracle that you know I was able to win that race. But uh, I won some great races, uh, you know, uh, Charlotte and Atlanta and races like that. You won one of them things back in them days. You was a, you know, you was a horsepower type person, you know. And if I didn't have car trouble or blow a tire, I won a lot of them, and I lost more than I won. NASCAR's 50th anniversary, Sports Illustrated named you the greatest driver in NASCAR history. What was your reaction to that? Well, you know... Uh, they had a lot of great race drivers. Curtis Turner, Buck Baker, and, and different ones like that came along through the sport. But I don't know if I was the greatest race driver in racing, but I know I could outrun anybody that come on that racetrack. That being said, in 1965, you won, I think, 12, 13 races? Yes. And... You decided to step out of the car. You decided to retire in 66. In 66, you ran, I think, six or seven races, but pretty much your driving career was over. What was the reasoning behind that? It's kind of hard for me to say, stand here and say, well, racing wasn't my whole life. Racing was not a determinator of me going and race ever race. I, I, you know, I could run and leave it either one. It didn't make yeah. any difference to me because I knew that I was the most trained, you know, physical person to drive one of them cars through my bootlegging days yeah. of anybody out there. And it did, it wasn't exciting to outrun any one of them, but the Daytona 500 was. And, I, you know, I, I really enjoyed winning the other races. But I don't think racing put me in the category with the guys that didn't have the driving style or did not have as much experience as I had to go on the racetrack with. It was just not a thing. Or Am I, I, I going to finish second today or... Uh, whatever. If that car run, I knew I was going to win that race. 
Most of them I did win. You seem to have a very definite style of running a race team. How would you describe yourself as a team owner? Vicious. I can't stand a job half done. And when I went to the racetrack and got beat, it was because the car wouldn't finish when it left the shop. And that was not my style. How did you translate that to your employees? A lot of times they got fired. And that, you know, it starts at the top and it comes down. But uh, work is what it takes. If you go to the racetrack and you hadn't done your job back at the garage, you might as well have stayed home. And sometimes we was at a disadvantage with the car or the motor or something of that nature, and I could I could accept that, but I didn't accept it very long. You know, I fixed it, got the problem fixed, and go win races. But when you're switching cars, like I did, I'd be with Oldsmobile today, and tomorrow I'd be with Buick or or Ford, or just a different car completely, not knowing what it's going to act like or nothing else. I didn't care because I knew we could fix it. And it was a better deal for me, and and I had to have the best deal going because I didn't have the money to run it out of my pocket. I had to have good sponsors and good relationships with the motor companies. Saying that, uh, you know, I had to have the efficiency out of the people to get it done. Well, Steve, what did you think about that? Very impressive. Very impressive. I'll tell you a few stories about Junior's Moonshine, but I'll tell you one that I think is particularly interesting. The revenuers, as they were called, went to his house. They actually raided his house, not the still, but the house. And they found in that house 7,100 gallons of moonshine. It was the largest single seizure of moonshine <laughs> on land. Not the ocean, but on land. And uh, the way they got it out of the house was to build uh, a platform that ran down the stairs, you know, like a slide, which is exactly what it was. And they would take a case of moonshine from the top, slide it down that slide to the bottom. The kids, Junior included, jumped on those boxes and rode that slide down to the first floor, right on down the stairs. They enjoyed it. That was fun. And the revenue says that, you kids, get out of here. And Junior said, you get out of here. This is our house. <laughs> Well, you know, you and I both have had the privilege of having breakfast at Junior's shop there in Hamptonville, North Carolina. And when Junior would host those breakfasts there, some of his moonshine buddies actually showed up. I remember very vividly Millard Ashley Mm -hmm. being there. And it was really interesting to see their relationship because they could have complete, entire, deep conversations and say very, very few words. And, you know, it was always kind of cool to see them get off in a corner and talk to each other. And Lord only knows what they were discussing. Well, Millard and Clay, uh, both, as you said, both good friends of Junior's, uh, 
they profited by the same business that Union was in. And one of the things you learned running that business is you did not say too much at all. So they were, um, well, you know, pretty close to the vest when it came to speaking, but they were extremely close friends. And I'll tell you a story that I like to tell is that when the book was published and we were able to get some book signing dates, uh, Tom and I would go with Junior uh, and go to the bookstore. Well, Miller and Clay would tag along, and lo and behold. Now, there was an education. Oh, I'm telling you something. <laughs> They would actually bring with them a 1940 Flathead Ford and build a still. I mean, they had all the pieces there and put it together outside of the bookshop. Now, you talk about good marketing. <laughs> You'd no doubt people would stop and take a look and see what was going on. Meanwhile, Miller and Clay would sit off to the side wearing their bib overalls and just smiling. You know, it's one thing to bring a show car to an appearance. It's something else entirely different to bring a steel. That's right. And now Junior directed the billing of a steel that's in the NASCAR Hall of Fame. They couldn't figure out, from what I understand, how to get it actually constructed. And so Junior actually brought the special tools. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he did. He did. He directed the building of it. And uh, so it's about as accurate as you're ever going to get as to what a steel looks like. And still, people wonder, why is it still in the NASCAR Hall of Fame? Hey, NASCAR didn't want to admit this was true for a long, long time and denied it, but finally accepted the fact that racing was born from fast cars that were used in moonshine hauling. Well, you know, I think that is an interesting evolution because it seemed almost inevitable that Junior was going to transition from being a moonshine runner into a NASCAR stock car driver. How do you think the experience of being a moonshine runner played into his being a race car driver oh very much and if you if you look at it closely moonshine ring was his education that's where he learned to drive cars fast and avoid trouble as much as possible now the roads they were driving on this is not the era of the interstate i mean these were two lane country roads and these guys would just fly uh along those roads hauling the shine to various destinations now, the revenuers would chase them. That's all true. They come after them all the time. And usually, the moonshiners won because they knew the tricks, the turns, the twists, uh, that the thing they now call a bootlegger's turn, which is you turn the car around completely, 180 degrees and go the other way, you know, that type of thing. So if you learned to do that on a small country road, it was natural to transition it over to a self-made dirt track or, uh, or some other, you know, outlet to have the car go fast. Moonshiners started racing each other to see which one had the fastest car. And if you, that's the birth of stock car racing. When people complain about road courses and say that they have no place in NASCAR, if you really think about it, NASCAR was born not on oval tracks, but on these back roads, backwoods, country dirt roads, uphills, downhills, around turns, bootlegger turns, the whole nine yards. Road courses don't get any more NASCAR than that. No, they sure don't, and you're exactly right about that. In fact, the first competition between the moonshiners actually started on those kinds of roads. They picked point A to start and point B to finish, and the first one there won the race, and that's how it started. But later on, uh, somebody figured out I could get all these cars in the same place and everyone could see them 
If I cut a big circle in this old field I've got out of dirt and have them run there and run so many times around that circle and the first one back to the finish line at the end of those number of turns they had to make around that circle would be the winner. And people could watch it. And what's more, I could charge admission for it. That's how it really started. Junior was known as a very, very aggressive driver. And I think that really does play into his background as a moonshine runner because when he had the revenuers chasing him, he couldn't afford to lay back. It was either drive as hard as you could possibly go or get caught and spend time in jail. And the other thing to mention here that benefited Junior so much, moonshiners had to work on their own cars. They didn't have special garages or anything of that nature to go to. They had to do it themselves. Therefore, they learned a great deal about how to uh, rebuild an engine, how to build a transmission, and how to lighten up a car to make it go faster, and uh, the, the type of tires to use, all that. They experimented with that sort of thing and to make their cars not only fast but sturdy. I mean, let's face it, you, could, you couldn't give up a car a night. You had to have the thing rebuilt, and they did it all that themselves. So, it, you know, you include that with the ability to drive fast, and you have what eventually became a near-perfect driver-slash-owner in NASCAR. There's a very famous article that was written by Thomas Wolfe about Junior in Esquire magazine, and... <laughs> I don't know of any two people that could be as opposite as what they were. That article really played into the the legend of Junior Johnson. Uh, Yeah, you're right about opposites. Here's Junior, uh, wears bib overalls and a checkered shirt or something like that. And Thomas Wolfe is in these white linen suits. (laughs) And he wore those at the racetrack while he was talking about Junior and doing the interview with Junior. What that magazine article did for Junior, obviously, was great. But let's uh, take a look at the whole thing. He presented, Thomas Wolfe presented Junior Johnson and racing and NASCAR in a venue it had never been, a national magazine. And that uh, certainly helped the promotion of the sport and of Junior, no doubt about it. Speaking of national magazines, at the turn of the century from 1999 to the year 2000, I believe Sports Illustrated named Junior the greatest race car driver ever, if I'm not mistaken. What do you think that meant to him? Well, it meant enough for him to go all over Wilkes County and nearby neighborhoods at it, buying up every Sports <laughs> Illustrated. That's really not. Get his hands on. <laughs> that meant a great deal to him. The only other thing I think that might have meant as much or more was, to, of course, be in the first class of the NASCAR Hall of Fame. Uh, Junior, he, he took pride in his work. There's no, He didn't brag about it, but he took a lot of pride in it, as any man would, and to accomplish what he did in racing and then be recognized for it. For, as you say, a national magazine devoted to sports uh, is a, a singularly high honor. You and I have briefly mentioned breakfast at Junior Johnson's. Yeah. And I've got to tell you, I live maybe five miles from the house where he used to live in Yakin County, North Carolina. It was such a privilege to be able to go over there and sit down with Junior and to, for a brief time, be accepted as a small part of that circle. I cannot begin to tell you the spread of food that was on that table. (laughs) (laughs) The thing that I remember most was 
you know, he had a his own line of country ham at, at one time. And one of the brands, one of the products that that line included was country ham. And it was the saltiest, <laughs> saltiest thing I had ever tasted. I eat way too much salt. But for me to be able to say it was very salty, it was something else. Oh, you, you got that right. And, and uh, Junior was... Uh known for being the guy who cooked the meat at every breakfast. That's what he did. And I've been up there many times, and so have several other people. And you gather, uh, sometimes before the sun gets up, you start gathering into his shop, and it could be anybody there. Most anybody that you even knew was uh, was welcome. And uh, the thing led to eventually a place where he conducted business, Many times after the breakfast is over and uh, friends and neighbors departed, people who wanted to do business with Junior stayed behind to talk to him about whatever it is they wanted him to talk about. Uh, and uh, uh, that happened very regularly. Uh, I know because I was part of it <laughs> when we were writing the book, of course. So the, I think it got to be the point where if you wanted to do business with Junior, you came to breakfast. This was no light meal either. You went there and uh, basically left there and went to see your cardiologist. This was not a healthy eating place at all. And no, and there was plenty of it, which is even worse. But Lord help you. You're sitting there. You're eating the, the uh, sausage and the ham and the scrambled eggs and the grits and everything. And you can feel your arteries harden. But you don't care. You don't care. <laughs> no, you don't care because there's Junior Johnson. And, you know, there may be – I remember going up and Waddell Wilson was there one time. Uh, Pappy, Tom Higgins came in one time. So that was just a fun time. And, and to be honest with you, it's one of the things I miss most about him not living there anymore. That's true. And uh, I, I admit I do too. But uh, all things, you know, must pass at some point. But as long as Junior had those breakfasts and everybody was welcome, uh, it was truly something special. I'll tell you that. Steve, I want to share a clip from next week's episode. And in it, I ask Junior if he had had a race that he really wanted to win and could have used any driver that had ever driven for him, who would he have picked? Steve, here's the clip. Of all the drivers you had, and you had some definite Hall of Famers, if you had to win one race and you could have put any of those drivers in your race car, which driver would you have picked? Well, you know, I used to drive for myself, so I'd have got in. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's take, let's take Junior out of the equation. Other than Junior Johnson. Bobby Allison, I had him when he was prime. I had Daryl, Kale, different ones like that. I had them in their prime. And when you got a driver in his prime, he is the best driver out there and i never ever threaten darl or kale or somebody like that to get in their car and drive it if i had to choose one driver it'd been leroy robber leroy yarborough huh yes i'll tell you what that kind of surprises me to be very honest with you with all the drivers that junior has had over the years but in another way it makes sense because Leroy was known as a hard charger, a lead foot. And Junior had no problem with that kind of a driver. In other words... Because he was one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, win the race or bring it home on a tow truck. 
that was the kind of uh, style Junior had. So Junior appreciated that very much out of Leroy, and uh, they accomplished a lot together in a very short time that they were together. Kind of wonder what would have happened had Leroy been able to um, stay alive. He, you know, he unfortunately had uh, an illness and uh, uh, passed before his time. But that leads to other Johnson adventures. But nevertheless, uh, I can understand his answer. How about Junior picking himself before anybody? Well, what else is he going to do? (laughs) (laughs) Every time in every interview I have done with Junior, when we have been interviewed by others, which that happened a lot while the book was out, and and I was very fortunate that it did. Every time a person doing the interview asked Junior, who was your favorite driver or who was the driver you admired most and you would always smile and point a finger to his chest (laughs) (laughs) well listeners you definitely do not want to miss that steve that about wraps it up for this episode of the scene vault podcast Awesome interview with Junior Johnson and fans, listeners, you do not want to miss the next and final installment of this interview. It really is a good one. If you'd like to contact us, you can email scenevault at yahoo.com or reach out to us on Twitter at the scene vault. Also, check out our Patreon program. One dollar a month will get you the right to ask a question of a future interviewee. $5 a month will get you a copy of either Dell versus Daytona or NASCAR's Greatest Race. And $10 a month will get you both. Go to P-A-T-R-E-O-N slash The Scene Vault Podcast. Steve, we're actually starting to see a little bit of life on the Patreon program. Well, I'm glad to hear that. That's certainly a fine offer you've got uh, going out to the listeners. I can assure them that uh, your books are worth Having, I have both of them myself, and uh, I've said this before, but I say it again, masterful job of research. Uh, there's details in those books that I didn't even know. So uh, make an effort to uh, get a chance to grab yourselves those books, list- listeners. Well, if I'm such a masterful writer, can I ask you for a raise now? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Steve, we have been getting some awesome reviews on iTunes, and I did want to share just a couple of them. Racer929 says, Steve Wade can spin a good yarn, as they say. I love listening to him recount stories from the 70s through 90s. I was a scene subscriber from 1982 until the end and sorely missed that publication. Steve's writing influenced my writing style in high school and college. If you want to learn about the history and personalities of the sport, this podcast is a must listen. Now, are you related to Racer Nine Twenty Nine? No, but that one there cost me about a hundred bucks. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's just very nice. It's very uh, uh, humbling to hear that, and I, I am deeply appreciative of it. No question about it. EB Nitro Fifty Six says on iTunes, "This show has quickly become my favorite NASCAR and auto racing podcast." After hearing the first episode, I had to keep refreshing until the second episode finally came out. Thank you guys for sharing the story of NASCAR. And that is what we're trying to do, sharing the story of NASCAR. Exactly, Rick. You got it. And I'm glad to see the people appreciate it. 
you know, the reviews really do mean a lot. And on iTunes especially, it's it's pretty important to get, you know, good placement and all that kind of thing. We have, I think, 15 or 16 actually written reviews on iTunes now. And when we get up to 50, I'm going to give one lucky reviewer a copy of every single NASCAR book I've ever written. That's second to none. That's Rockingham Speedway, NASCAR's Greatest Race, Dell versus Daytona, a book about Kurt Busch. I'll admit it. I wrote a book about Kurt Busch. And that will be yours for one lucky reviewer. That is an awesome prize. Uh, I tell you what, whoever wins that has got themselves a handsome and informative and entertaining racing library. I would like to thank Peter Salino and the team at Centire Media. I really and truly do appreciate their belief in this project. Also, I would like to thank my best friend, Joe Estep, and his band, Frantic Radio Beings, for the theme music. Listeners, we'll see you next week.